Welcome to you all. Hope you'll thoroughly enjoy our program. Real Britannia, a very British podcast about very British movies with just a hint of professionalism. Scott here, good morning Stephen. Morning Matt, how are you doing? I'm fine, it's our long-awaited Hammer Horror season. Finally started, we got episode 100 out of the way last week and now we can get on. This This plan has been sort of gestating since about episode 20 or so, hasn't it? Maybe we just never got round to it. Yeah, we've been talking about it ever since, definitely since I came on. Mm. Um, we've been talking about it, but in our usual fashion, not actually getting around to it. <laughs> we had other stuff we wanted to cover, and, and we were only sort of traditionally doing horror movies on sort of a Halloween editions, weren't we? So yes. Hammer has been seriously overlooked. What we've decided, unlike our dear friends Smokey, Adam, Kev over at the House of Horror podcast, excellent podcast, by the way, we're going to go back to the 50s and we're going to go to where we think Hammer really hit its stride in the horror genre so we're starting with the Quatermass experiment um, we may go back to some of those early movies eventually but at the moment we, we, we've decided we're going to go sort of chronologically from Quatermass experiment with a couple of possible omissions along the way and we just thought well Quatermass experiment we needed to find somebody who knows a little bit about the Quatermass experiment and who better and our dear friend Mark from the Good, the Bad and the Odd podcast. Hello. Hi, hi, hi. <laughs> now, How are you? Oh, absolutely fine. Great to hear from you again. Now, I'm saying expert. We, we, we don't get much more of an expert than a guy that's written a book on the history of Quatermass in TV and movies. Yeah. So... <laughs> Thank you. Quatermass in movies and TV. If anyone wants it, they could go look on Amazon. Right? It's there, and I'm ashamed to say I haven't bloody read it, mate, but I will be getting a copy. I've read it a couple of times. Have you? Is it all right? It's all right. Yeah, it's not. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so I, know I am fully immersed in Quatermass, and I have been on several pod other podcasts over the years to correct Quatermass. So, uh, it may be you've already heard me talk at length ad nauseum, some might say. <laughs> um, so, uh, yes, uh, yes. Anyway, carry on. Well, well, short of having Nigel Neal sitting here in the studio, we've got the yeah, next best. Yeah, you don't want him. He's miserable. No, that's yeah. fine. Then. We've got we've got a better better alternative then. That's absolutely fine. Not only a Quatermass fan, big Hammer Horror fan, mate. 
Oh, yes, yes. I mean, I grew up on the hammer. It used to be on a Monday night on ITV yeah. at half past 10 after the news, or rather, more like 20 to 11. Yeah. And I remember uh, my mother would let me watch them as long as I went to bed at seven, slept. <laughs> And then got up at half ten to watch yeah. them. Oh. Uh, of course, I never did actually sleep. Of course not. Of course you not. can't go to sleep at half past uh, seven. And then also uh, the uh, BB, the special, very special, the BBC uh, double bills on a Friday and Saturday night That's that would happen uh, where they'd pair. Often, not always, pair a Universal with a Hammer film. That's so uh, where I've got started. a lot of Hammer mm. back in my life early on. You know talking eight nine ten exactly yeah. same as started very early i remember seeing taste the blood of dracula on one of those monday night screenings mm. uh this particular one i looked up the date that i watched it because i thought it was part of one of those bbc horror double bills but it wasn't i checked you know the radio times have got all their complete listings the bbc genome project or something wow. you can see it on, yeah so i went back and had a little look and it was june the 20th 1980 just after match of the day on a saturday night and I remember it well. This then it's the first time I've watched this since, believe it or not. So, forty, wow, 40 really? odd years later, yeah. Wow, <laughs> well, I definitely watched it before then. I don't know when, but I definitely mm. saw it before then. I'm sure I did. I'm sure I was aware of quite a mass from almost the same awareness as Doctor Who. That's how early I remember. Yeah, well, you had the um, the John Mills like late 70s thing on itv didn't you 78 79 as well yes yes there was that. but i'd say i definitely saw the these movies before that right. came on because I, I knew quatermass already i think i became aware of quatermass reading about doctor who the history of doctor who when i was a kid because mm. i used to consume all the doctor who books because they didn't repeat them you know of course. You, yeah you could find out i i got most of the doctor who stories for the early ones through the books rather than watching them the first. target books uh, yeah yeah i'll click Target all those. Books, yeah. yeah. Um, so, yeah, Quatermass has been on my radar for a long time. Excellent. Stephen, Hammer Horror, what's your history with the whole wonderful genre, mate? Well, it's absolutely just part of the British psyche. So I'm one of those that it's very difficult to be able to pinpoint when I first um, encountered it. It was just always there. Obviously, sometime in the 80s, it will have been that I first saw one of them, most likely uh, one of the, the Christopher Lee yeah. Uh, Dracula's, I imagine, and it's just obviously since then, just there's so much more to explore and enjoy. And yes, there is a, a, a bit of campiness and there is a bit of fun to it, but there's also a, a quality there that you don't easily find in in horror not done by British people, to be perfectly honest. So, uh, which is why it is uh, very British and suiting this podcast. Mm-hmm. Um, as far as as Quatermass, I mean. I think that was a little bit later I came to that sometime, maybe later 90s. I first saw that. Yeah. Uh, I've seen it about four times now, I think. Certainly, it's it's not to be denigrated, and I can understand the fascination uh, enough to actually uh, write a book about it, to be honest. <laughs> well, thank Not you. read it, obviously, but to write one, yeah. Yeah, yeah well, th- thankfully, we've got our expert here. I mean, I'm looking forward to just revisiting these. A few of them I'm very, very familiar with. Some I've only seen once or twice. There might be a couple in here that I haven't seen, you know. 
Mark has been re-watching quite recently because you're covering the whole Hammer series on your own podcast, The Good, the Bad and the Odd Mate, aren't you? And you're... We are. We're, I'm just about to edit and put out The Gorgon, which I think is number 16 in our series. Uh, and that includes somewhere we've double uh, got two films in one. So we've got through a fair number of films. So we were about 64, chronologically about 64. Yeah. 1 million BC is next. Okay. Uh, that gives you a kind of idea. So, so that's 65. So you're going to so, cover yeah. that type of horror, um, Hammer movie as well. We probably won't do 1 million years BC or she, we just decided off air. Yeah, there's a lot there. There's a lot there, guys, that we've got to go through. I th- by my reckoning, I think we've got about 52 movies to cover. Yeah, and that's you know, not including, as you say, some of the other Hammer stuff that is reputable to be perfectly honest well, um, um, on the buses you know there's uh, yeah on, on, the buses, <laughs> on the buses yeah um i mean i, I no, I've, I've recently become you know picked away at some of the pre-horror hammers mm-hmm. um, with some of the film noir and and some great ones in oh. in there has anyone but, seen um, the snorkel have you seen the snorkel I've seen the snorkel. Uh, yeah, it's an interesting film. Uh, very, uh, I saw it when I was about 10, and I've only ever seen it once, but I still remember it very mm. distinctly. Stephen, so check it, it out. It was impactful. Yeah, Stephen, check it out. It's on Talking Pictures TV quite often now. It's it's one of their fairly recent acquisitions, mate. It's uh, it's, it's, a, it's a bizarre one. So you're looking forward to this, Stephen, because there must be a few that you haven't seen. There's a few sort of gems in there that you're more than familiar with, I take it. Yeah, absolutely. Is you've identified that there are some, some that I think I've seen but haven't, and then there's some that uh, the other way around. I think, oh, I've not seen this, and I watch it. I go, oh no, I have. It's, 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 I think sometimes they've been shown under slightly different names as well because um, the the print that they're using is the, the American release or whatever. So occasionally that comes about, but certainly the the more familiar ones like the the Dracula ones and the the Karnstein, yeah um ones are, are the what ones that are most frequently shown and, and that they'll be the ones i'm most familiar with obviously so right guys listen what we've decided um similar to the kitchen sink series that we're running at the moment we're going to try and put together one of those little mini documentaries along with the trailer before we go into our review uh hopefully give a little bit of information about what we're going to be talking about so hopefully you should be able to hear that in a few minutes time we've got a usual feature the village hall of fame and as as this series progresses Stephen, you're going to do a separate hammer hall of fame as well mate i think you said that's absolutely right yes um it won't kick in for a few episodes obviously because to begin with uh, yeah. everybody's making their first appearance yeah so everybody's in you know to start with but already we're predicting that michael ripper is going to be the first inductee i think we're pretty confident on this guy uh, well we? actually it depends <laughs> if you include scoring it'll be james bernard definitely yeah, uh, definitely. yeah that's true that's true yeah so we've also got as well and we don't know if this is going to work (laughs) we've got a brand new feature that's hilariously entitled bob's full house of horror um it's 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 hammer hammer horror bingo guys we (laughs) (laughs) see stupid my my co-hosts are laughing because they've obviously got no no faith in this project whatsoever i could i could just hear them mocking this whole this we may drop this after a couple of episodes we don't know but (laughs) but the plan is we've got some bingo cards steven has, has 
put his graphic design talents to to great use once again and and designed a few bingo cards that we're going to put on the Facebook group and you can download and play along with us because Hammer has got a fair few tropes, guys, hasn't it? That's one thing we're going to learn. Oh, yes. (laughs) So Yeah, there's quite a a few to pick out and maybe not so much in this um, film that we're going to yeah. do today it's, as many but certainly with the others there's somewhere that there is a bingo card worth <laughs> in letter this may fall on its arse at the first hurdle that's all we're going to say is <laughs> but we'll give it a go we'll give it a go so guys without further ado make sure you haven't got any captive exotic caged animals make sure they're all safely locked away guys we're going to be talking about the Quatermass Express. And so, at last, we reach the first of our Hammer Horror Reviews. The Great Mass Experiment from 1955. Hammer had, of course, been in existence for many years before this, and had put out several minor horrors, thrillers and chillers. Hammer is one of the oldest film companies in the world, having been founded in 1934, and although being renowned for its horror output, in actual fact, only about a third of their movies actually fall into that genre. When Hammer Film Productions was founded on the 5th of November 1934, its initial productions ranged from comedies such as The Public Life of Henry IX, the slave drama The Song of Freedom starring Paul Robeson, and Bella Lugosi starring in The Mystery of the Marie Celeste. But with the Second World War looming on the horizon, production stopped in 1936 with the Bank Messenger Mystery, and didn't resume again until 1948 with detective mysteries and boys' own adventures, including a run of Dick Barton movies. But it was the 1950s that truly set the ball rolling for Hammer. 1951 saw a collaboration with US movie producer Robert Lippert, and soon Hammer films were featuring US movie stars were making small inroads into the American market. Film noir and crime thrillers were the order of the day, with titles such as Bad Blonde, Terror Street and Mantrap. Casablanca star Paul Henry appeared in Stolen Face alongside Elizabeth Scott. Barbara Payton, probably better known for her stormy social life and battles with alcoholism and drug addiction, starred in Four-Sided Triangle. And there was an early appearance for Diana Dawes in Man Bait. American actor Don Taylor starred as Robin Hood in the studio's first colour film in 1954, Men of Sherwood Forest. Taylor, of course, finding greater success later in life as a director of such films as Omen 2 and Escape from the Planet of the Apes. So why are we choosing this movie as our starting point? Well, quite simply, many believe that this is where Hammer truly got noticed as a studio on the worldwide stage, and in effect led to the creation of some of the most successful and popular British movies of all time. The success of the movie was also undoubtedly down to the fact that it was based on a hugely popular BBC TV serial. It was 1955, television was just starting to become part of everyday entertainment for many households, thanks mainly to the success of the screening of the Queen's Coronation a couple of years earlier. 
In the same year as the coronation, the BBC screened Nigel Neal's original TV serial version of the Quatermass Experiment. And for several weeks, a terrified nation watched in horror at the tale of an astronaut who returns from space with a mysterious infection that mutates him into a monstrous new organism that threatens to destroy life on the entire planet. Hammer brought the rights to the six-part serial, changing the name to The Creeping Unknown for the American audience and removing the first letter E from the word experiment. This was in anticipation of the X certificate the film was likely to receive from the BBFC. Val Guest was chosen to direct the movie, and he'd go on to direct the sequel, as well as The Abominable Snowman for the studio, and the excellent The Day the Earth Caught Fire. Brian Don Levy was cast as Quatermass, an American actor who had previously appeared in Beaugest and The Glass Key. By all accounts, Nigel Neal was appalled by Don Levy's belligerent interpretation of Quatermass. Val Guest, however, was more than satisfied, saying that his star gave a very down-to-earth feel to a very off-the-earth subject. Jack Warner took on the role of Inspector Lomax, one of his last movie appearances before his 21-year run on TV as Dixon of Doc Green. And as well as appearances from David Kingwood, Thora Heard and Harold Lang, all previously employed by guests in other movies, there was Margie Hadid. Dean. Dean, who played the role of Judith Caroon, was, shall we say, imposed on the director, as she was the girlfriend of Spiros Skouras, the president of 20th Century Fox. Executive producer Michael Carrera stated years later, Skouros had a girlfriend who was an actress, and he wanted her to be in pictures. But he didn't want her to be in pictures in America, because of the tittle-tattle or whatever, so he set it up through his friend Bob Lippert. Skouros was the one who said we should have an American partner, so it all came right from the top. The movie is not just sci-fi or horror. It's part drama, and in some places it has an almost documentary feel. In others, it's a detective story. It can appear a little slow-paced at times, but this is to the film's advantage, as when the horror elements kick in, they're punctuated by a suitably creepy and intense score by the legendary James Bernard. An intelligent and menacing movie and an ideal starting point for our Hammer Horror retrospective. Ladies and gentlemen, it's back to 1955. It's the Quatermass Experiment. You can't escape it. Mackie, look! Nothing can destroy it. It's coming for you from space to wipe all living things from the face of the Earth. Beware of the creeping unknown. This woman is about to learn a terrible secret. She will never be the same again. Because this man knows that same secret, he will never speak again. To both of them has come terror in the form of... The Creeping Unknown. Three men went into outer space. Only one of them came back. Came back a strange, distorted creature, haunted and possessed by something beyond human understanding. What was the terrible secret he could not tell them? There's a whole new world out there, a wilderness, uncharted. 
And he's been there and come back. He's got the map. Unlock his mind for me, Briscoe, and find it. I know you can do it. It isn't just a I question I know the I... strain and tension you've been under, but to stop now when we're so close... Brian Donlevy, he dared an experiment that shocked a nation. You've destroyed him like you've destroyed everything else you've touched, Kent. There's no room for personal feelings in science, Judith. An experiment that created the Creeping Unknown. Corner around the entire area, evacuate all public, get information to check up every movement that's likely to take place inside this radius tonight. Yes, sir. Warn everyone not to touch anything unusual they may find in the streets. Quatermass Experiment, released in the UK 1955, starring Brian Don Levy, Gordon Jackson, Thora Hurd, Margie Dean, Jack Warner's in here, Lionel Jeffries, Sam Kidd, and a fantastic performance by Richard Wordsworth. The briefest of synopsis on IMDb, Professor Bernard Quatermass's manned rocket ship returns to Earth, but two of the astronauts are missing, and the survivor seems ill and unable to communicate. Right, that's all it says on IMDb. Uh, as we're going to find out in the next sort of half an hour, 45 minutes or so, there is a lot more to that plot than that lets on there. Before we go into the movie, guys, um, we need to go back a couple of years because the story all starts with the BBC two, three years prior to this and not Hammer. And in particular, it's, it's all to do with a legend in British horror, British sci-fi, ghost stories, Mr Nigel Neal. Um, Mark... Tell us a little about Mr. Neil. The original BBC production, 1953. You know, where, where did this all begin before Hammer got, luckily, got their claws into it? Oh, Nigel Neil was a sort of jobbing writer for the BBC, and he had some ideas involving this character, a scientist character. He had three particular plots in mind, and he took it to a producer or discussed it with a producer called Rudolf Cartier mm. uh, and laid out the three ideas. Uh, and Cartier said, well, this is the one we're most likely to be able to do because the nature of it is, you know, it, it's smaller scale, you know, it's more feasible. And it was actually the three stories we know as the Quiet Mass Experiment, Quiet Mass 2 and Quiet Mass and the Pit. So mm -hmm. they were all kind of forming in nigel neal's mind in the early 50s really mm. uh so quite a mass experiment was the one they decided to go with um and it uh, took it from there really and nigel neal uh, wrote the scripts it hadn't completed the full all six episode scripts uh, yeah. when filming started he was uh, on the first he'd done the first four uh, and luckily um uh, Rudolf Carte was fairly innovative and sort of young and dynamic, and he put a lot of new techniques mm -hmm. to what was fairly staid drama in BBC on the BBC. Uh, and uh, you know, they were using like Holst and the intro titles, he had some clever ideas using stencils and smoke, mm. uh, for the the big the pre the title sequence so it was all like new and dynamic and man was this bit this was possibly the biggest 
one of the first big TV phenomenons of, mm. of Britain. Gonna say um, that this is what I read. It was it was like everybody was talking about it at work on the Everybody Monday morning was talking about it. Like they yeah. do now with I don't know, the Mandalorian or in mm. it's in the past it would have been the X Files yeah. or Who Shot JR or <laughs> yeah. you know, Quite Mass was there before it. However, there was a bigger phenomena earlier that year, which was the Queen's Coronation. Oh, which cool. sold a lot of TV. TVs across the night. People bought TVs just to watch the coronation. So the audience um, was there then, mate. You know, they got this new product, and it was like, right, let's get something on it to indeed. To satisfy and them. it was mm. into that sort of zeitgeist. And Nigel was interesting because he kind of plugs it, his stories into the zeitgeist. There are like there are things in Quite Mass and the Pit, for example, which are you know you can still watch it now and it's you know great. Mm. But he was plugging into certain social anxieties at the time with that with that story and he was kind of plugging into the fact that for example everyone knew Westminster Abbey right yeah, because yeah. they'd watched the coronation <laughs> True, <laughs> in there yeah. like four months before or something uh, so when the final episode of Great Mass Experiment was aired in Westminster Abbey it was you can imagine it was oh, electric wow you know? of course yeah am I, um, am I right in thinking because he was employed by the BBC when Hammer bought the rights. He didn't really get paid for it until like later. Like, there was like a one-off payment, like twenty years later or something, wasn't there? I'm not sure about that. He certainly mm. couldn't be involved in the writing of mm. the first one, so they rewrote it. Um, uh, and he hated. He basically hated Brandon Levy when he saw well, it because well, yeah, he is quite a significantly different character. But he was involved somewhat in the Quatermass Two. Oh, right. uh, writing so in that quite a massive soften somewhat mm -hmm. in this one he's properly sociopathic <laughs> he's almost like a precursor to because Fra uh, frankenstein isn't he yeah and he's just a driven scientist and and in the tv show he's not like that he's kind of a much softer concerned character in fact i don't think he's original tape played him in the first one i don't think he comes across that well in the only two episodes survive uh, mm. are around. Sorry, I say survived. They never actually recorded the last four at all. Oh, was, didn't they? No oh, they weren't wiped. Then. Uh, oh, right. No, okay. they weren't wiped. They were never recorded. The first two they only recorded because they thought they could use them as recaps in later oh. later episodes. Then they've been that idea, so they only recorded the first two. So he's we see his his acting and and, and how the character portrayed in the first two episodes but it's kind of a side character the side characters are way more interesting there's like an old lady and a news reporter talking away and they're way way better they in this film they they make they punch it up quite a bit in quite a good way Excellent. quite a good way Excellent. so yeah quite a comes from all of that nigel you know nigel went on to right onto loads of quite famous stuff but quite was his baby and it was in his brain Mm -hmm. You know, right. All three stories were in his brain right from the beginning, uh, so it was uh, kind of interesting. So innovative, empty pubs, yeah, empty pubs. This people went home to watch Quite a Mass on a Saturday night. So, uh, but more more innovative landlords wheeled the telly out into the bar <laughs> to keep the punters in, uh, and it worked. You know, it kept them in those pubs. So you'd go past the pub, it'd be empty, and you go past another one, it'd be full because Quite a Mass was showing. Had the, had the TV at the bar, brilliant. Yeah, it, you can't underestimate how important Quatermass was for the BBC because they were competing with ITV and they were looking for stuff to compete um, and in fact there's one fairly I think it was for Quatermass when Quatermass 2 or possibly Quatermass Pit and was around mm. where the BBC got quizzed by a select committee saying can you justify your budget 
And the answer, one word answer, Quatermass. Uh, <laughs> no argument. How about that? That's how important Quatermass was to the BBC and yeah. sort of the history of TV and, in fact, horror movies, in my opinion. So, which I'll talk about in a bit. So <laughs> influential. So influential. Let's talk about the movie itself. Stephen, you've seen this before, mate. I have, yeah. As I say, when I watched it this week, I think it was the fourth time I've watched it. Wow, okay. Uh, I watched it about two years ago. was the most recent time before then. I think absolutely it is praiseworthy in a lot of ways. And I think and the Hammer horror genre... Uh, although this is sci-fi, it obviously does tie in with the, the horror element. Mm. Um, I also think it's got elements of film noir in it, to be honest, in, in certain respects. You know, the early Hammer film noir, which I've been revisiting, it, it, it seems a natural progression into sci-fi and then the sci-fi into the more solid horror. So this is absolutely a key film in that respect. But um, beyond that, I can absolutely see how this is an establishing film with regards to sci-fi. There's a lot of uh, sort of the B-movie sci-fi that you can easily, you know, go out there and find that was done in the States with ping-pong ball eyes and, and <laughs> rubber arms flailing and, and you know, the men in, in tinfoil suits with ray guns and all that kind of stuff. And this this is absolutely more adult. It's sci-fi but it's really a thriller that's that's just you know it's, it's set within that genre and it's it's a lot more mature and there's certainly more to it than it just being a monster from outer space type movie yeah i think having launched a certain british approach to sci-fi which i think has led to to you know a certain other respects when you've got things like sounds silly but things like alien and and things like that that you get into sci-fi horror um but it's done a lot more cleverly than just sort of a a, a monster there or, or whatever that's been done elsewhere so this absolutely it ticks the boxes for us to be able to look at it and to be impressed by it to be perfectly honest there's a you know there's there's very few weak points in it and i think mark will you know better than me about budget and stuff but i think they do a lot with what they've got you know it's, it's only on screen for a very short amount of time as well to be perfectly honest in in modern terms it's, it's, so, under, um, it's under 90 so, yeah, minutes it's, isn't it this this movie it is yeah yeah and that's you know i think what the pack in it certainly doesn't keep you I'm sure that you know there's a lot more in the TV series, or there was that they've cool. cut out to to condense it down. Well, but Mark, still, it, it, Mark it works. Back, yeah, Mark will back you up on that because the first episode and a half, I think, is condensed into the first three or four minutes of this movie. Mark, isn't it? I think. Oh, indeed. There's whole uh, there's whole uh, quite long scenes where like the onlookers are talking about stuff. Mm. We get very little of that in in this, do we? I mm. I agree, Steve. That it's got some film noir elements. I also think it's got a touch of the cinema verite about it such a docu- it's a slightly documentarian yes. in how it looks yes. which gives it a realist grounds it quite heavily compared to say uh, american sci-fi there are exceptions in american sci-fi there's stuff like invasion of body snatchers which is way more grounded mm-hmm. and similar to a british sci-fi but british sci-fi in the 50s was quite grounded you know we had john windham uh, producing books at the same yeah. time right we yep. had you know Diana Triffids and uh, Midwich Cookers, yeah. mm. quite dark and cynical 
sci-fi, right? As you say, groundbreaking stuff because prior to this, Hammer was known for that sort of B-movie type film, Stephen, as you, as you quite rightly pointed out, mate. You know, and the forays into horror were very few and far between. And this, I mean, it's evident in the title, it's the Quatermass Experiment with an X, no E, because it highlighted the fact that it got an X certificate. I think it was only the 13th one to, to, to actually be awarded an X certificate. They weren't very commonplace at the time. Yeah, um, I think it got that, you know. Um, I think Hammer, one of the reasons Hammer's so well regarded is they just got lock, lucky in almost every department. They got people <laughs> like Cushing. They got a director like <laughs> Terence Fisher. Yeah. They got excellent set designers. They got James Bernard. They got some marketing guy that worked out putting an X <laughs> loud and clear. It's going to make people queue around the block. And that was because uh, the year, I think a year before or sometime just before that, Les Diaboliques, a French film, yes. got was the first to get an X, but there were queues around the block, and they thought, right, we'll have some of that. Exactly. You know? um, and also, there was this thirst for Quatermass, because everyone loved it on the telly. BBC did repeat it, because it wasn't recorded. So this was a lot the closest you could get to going down the video shop and rewatching something <laughs> was to go see the film again, right? It's like the perfect so, storm, uh, isn't it? When you When you get all the elements together. Oh yeah, right that's what place. Hammer was really. Yeah, right yes. place at the right time, and it just kickstarts the whole Hammer horror. You know, the era of it, the Hammer horror that we, we're going to celebrate. Because this film was the highest-grossing film in the UK um, at the in the year, which gave Hammer the confidence and the money to negotiate the rights from Universal for their stuff. So uh, this, without this film, there'd be no Hammer re- that we know of in terms of a horror. Um, sort of mainstay so well, that's how important this film is so as as we go through point, yeah <laughs> as we go through chronologically it's going to take a couple of movies it's going to take a year or two before we get into the the, the gold not even the golden age but the more familiar territory of the christopher lee peter cushing era um yes. And, of course, Mr. Michael Ripper, who's, who's going to be mentioned in pretty much every episode from now on. But this is the perfect kickstart, the perfect starting point. And it it just amazed me. As I say, it's the first time I've watched it in over 40 years. And I remember watching it thinking, I was, I was only 11 at the time. You know, it's like, oh, late night horror. And that was about as horrific as things so stop it. <laughs> and, <laughs> and I nearly spat my tea out. Yeah, it didn't take long, did it, for the old ageist comments to come out. And I, I, I'd forgotten the second half of the movie. I remember all the hospital sequences up to that point, but I forget forgotten the bit where he's he's you know freed from the hospital and he escapes. Let's just talk through. It. I mean, let's let's go through. It. It's a film of two halves almost. You know, you've got this fantastic science fiction element at the beginning, must have seemed fantastical, guys, because, you know, there weren't that many rockets being sent up with people on them back then. This is before Sputnik. This is before Yuri Gagarin, you know. So it is real, genuine science fiction here we're talking, aren't we? It's, it's this, this isn't a commonplace thing that was happening in the world, but, the you know, the, the research was there as the basis of this story. Yeah, I mean, it has to be said, at this point, Britain were actually was actually a viable contender in the mm. space race. Yeah. Uh, it got left behind very quickly after, you know, uh, mid-50s onwards, mm-hmm. uh, the Russians and the Americans totally yeah. dominated. But the Britain was actually in the space race at the beginning. Yeah. 
Um, interesting, right? It is. That's what I was saying. And but I think the treatment is, as you said, said before, about the, the realism and the, the the British attitude towards it, where it feels like it could happen. It's It's not really uh, sets in such a way that you're feeling that it is fantastical and it's it's believable mm. in that way as far as the actual setup of the rocket and the footage of the, the spacemen inside the, the astronauts inside the um, rocket the way they're they're moving around and stuff it, it it absolutely is believable, despite the fact that it had yet to be done as far as sending oh, people into space. Do you know what I thought? You know, when they're looking back over the footage of the cameras inside the rocket, you know, they've recovered the film. It, it's it's like the very first example of a found footage movie. It was like you were watching something that could yeah. have been made last year. You know, when we had this whole slew of found footage movies a few years back and and it was there 53 well 55 it was being it was done then yeah amazing isn't it yeah it's amazing and Um, and and totally engaging it's electric watching those guys because you know something bad's about to happen you don't know what it is right it is incredible and it's a great technique as well isn't it And, and and the way they explain how the camera flips over to you know show the gauges and the dials you know, Professor Quatermass has the answer for that. He said, "Oh, it worked." You know, that's the thing we put in place. You know, yeah, it's it's just that whole setup at the beginning. So we've got pure science fiction leading into a mystery movie as well as, as a sort of a not a who done it, but a, you know, a, a, a what happened sort of thing that then sort of develops into full blown horror. You've got everything. There's even some comedy in here as well you know poor old jack warner not being able to shave completely throughout the whole movie did anybody notice that jack yeah he kept getting interrupted while he was being shaved (laughs) a couple of times um and the other comedy came from thoroughhead right goblins how old is thoroughhead in this movie has anybody actually looked this up because i don't think she was that old probably about 30 Um, yeah she's playing like a 50 60 year old woman isn't she or something in this Oh, yeah, lush. <laughs> she was um, in her early 40s. Brilliant. Okay, you found out. Because I was just trying to think, because her daughter, Jeanette Scott, was in Day of the Triffids. Now, when was that? That was early 60s, wasn't it? 61, I think. And I was just trying to think, you know, when Thora Herb was in Went the Day Well, which was 1941, she was a a late teenager, early 20s or something, I think. She was, I think she was born around about the time of the... First World War, or just really? before, I think. Let's have a look. Um, I mean, we always associate Thora Heard as being, you know, this 80-year-old woman in a wheelchair presenting songs of praise or whatever. 1911, she was born, so she is early 40s. Wow. Yeah. A great comic aside here, isn't it, really, to see that that part of it? Is, because it just relieves the tension a wee bit. Yeah, well, it's totally... It doesn't... Um, um, it isn't dissonant with the material at all, I think, because of the uh, plain style uh, Val Guest brought to it. Um, so, yeah, it works really well. <laughs> and, and Jack Warner playing what else but a policeman? Of course. A very <laughs> avuncular one as well, because sometimes he can play slightly shifty people, can't he, yeah. occasionally. Yeah. But, it, yeah, it was, uh, you know, it was his Jack Warner, as we know him, wasn't it, really? Yeah, Lomax. Lomax changes somewhat in Quatermass too, but we, we can talk about that when we get to 
Okay. Too, but uh, uh, changes character uh, actor as well, but his character right. is much more friendly. Quatermass is the hard nose in this film, isn't he? He's totally driven, uh, mm. but Lomax is much more of a balancing act against Quatermass. Yeah, there's a great dynamic that goes on between the two. Stephen, you were going to jump in there, mate. Sorry, I was just going to say, yeah, I mean, it, you know, this even even though it's very early on, it wasn't even the first time that he appeared as a policeman. So, you know, it was very much that people will have seen him and instantly thought policeman rather than, rather, you know, they just completely accept that he was the police, he was a policeman and what he was doing was that dogged investigation, you know, perhaps with a bit of heart. Um, there was no question about him in that role whatsoever. He didn't have to do anything to sell it. It was yeah. just automatic that it, it's, it's a policeman and he happens to be Jack Warner because he is a policeman. Well, The Blue Lamp was 1950. This was five years before. And then Dixon and Doc Green, which spawned from The Blue Lamp movie, was released this year, I think, the first didn't episode. He, didn't he play a policeman in um, Always Rains on a Sunday? I think he did. He was he's a policeman in a couple of things, wasn't Not he? We've seen a few times. Seven. Seven, yeah. yeah. So, but mainly up to this point, he was known for the Huggets series of movies, which were more light-hearted, more family comedies, you know. But it's funny when you look back and think, oh, yeah, Jack Warner, policeman. There we go, yeah. <laughs> like like um, having William Hartnell as a, you know, an, an army sergeant or something, or, yeah, yeah. or or Bernard Lee as a, you know, same same sort of thing. So we've got this whole science fiction element, we've got this mystery element, we've got this light-hearted sort of like interlude along the way. Brian Don Levy, let's just talk about him as Quatermass, Mark, because Nigel Neal wasn't happy with the casting of Brian Don Levy, and at this point in his career, you know, he he, he was past his peak, and he was he was actually quite an alcoholic, wasn't he? You know, he was. He was oh yes, he was drunk, but he was a functioning alcoholic. He could he could uh, he could act, you know, he could still bring it when he even drunk. Yeah, yeah. I mean, there's there's no evidence of that on screen, is there? But I read somewhere nah. that. He would always bring like a flask of coffee onto set, and that would be laced with with brandy or whatever it may have been. Um, yeah. So he was drinking throughout all of the scenes, and it is a different interpretation of Quatermass to the TV version, and even to is it Andrew Keir, isn't it, in Quatermass and the Pit in the third one? You know. Yeah. Oh yes, this is not like almost any other Quatermass. Brian Dunleavy, this particular one is the. The, the the strangest of the representations mm. of Quatermass. If you go to the TV shows or the you know they they're usually much more avuncular characters, yeah. uh, concerned with doing the right thing, uh, concerned about people, but trying to do it with trying to they and someone who's using his brain to figure out stuff. In this is is kind of a much more of a sociopath really that's mm-hmm. he's only concerned about his rocket and sort of stuff like that um that changes somewhat in quite a mass too where nigel neil does get involved in the writing yeah uh uh, but he's quite a radically different Quatermass. I really like Brandon Levy as Quatermass. I have to say, um, he is—he's uh, just quite striking, uh, and it's almost like a template for the uh, driven scientist trope. Yeah, yeah I had no uh, which problem with, with him. Victor Frankenstein. Yeah, no problem with him. But did you think he was just brought in because it was a fairly big name American actor that you know may have helped push sales? Over the Atlantic. Oh yeah, definitely. That's, that's definitely the reason behind it. it. Yeah, okay, yeah. right. Yeah, yeah, definitely. I mean, he was famous for being a heavies in westerns, wasn't yes. he? That was yeah. that was his thing. Uh, but it re- it totally works. Uh, and they did something similar with X the Unknown. They brought in Dean Jagger, who was ah. an American character actor, who was much more like 
in terms of the way he acted, much more like the Quatermass we know, but he's not Quatermass. He's a different character. Royston is his name. Um, but they, Nigel Neal would not, they presented the story to Nigel Neal as a Quatermass story. He said, no, I wrote. Nigel Neal is a, is a fairly ornery kind of guy. He does not like people touching his stuff. He's happy to touch <laughs> everyone else's, but he does not like people touching his. So, uh, uh, yeah. So, yeah, it was a standard thing, wasn't it? I mean, it, to bring in a, one American name, to be able to get American distribution. That's the thing. Uh, um, I think this might have been the first hammer that got American distribution, or first significant one that got American distribution I think as it's well. the first one that got noticed. Which is right. why we're sort of yeah. choosing this as our starting point because this is the the introduction of Hammer being a worldwide phenomenon. You know, um, certainly from then on, the budgets start to increase, and we, you know we start seeing what we're more familiar with as a Hammer horror movie. We can't talk about this film without mentioning uh, what's his face, Richard Wordsworth, uh, as Victor Caroon. Now quite rightly in a lot of the reviews i've seen there are comparisons to carlos frankenstein in this uh it's not surprising really because there's the scene with the little girl which oh, the, is yeah. like a direct lift uh, from uh from uh the 31 frankenstein True. and uh, yeah i think it's an apt comparison he gives a great performance Stephen, i mean you've seen I see it and uh you know I've, i think that's used as a comparison in a complimentary sense, yeah. Um, rather than it being that he's he's doing a, a a pastiche of it and it's and it's a lazy performance, I think it absolutely is channeling that vibe and making it work because it's absolutely correctly placed. And he does it he does do it well. And you know the the way that they've got him made up does also ring um, bells as well, similarity wise, mm. and the way he's, he's moving, but. No, I think the performance is is great, and it's very, very difficult to put across such a, a performance when he, you know, doesn't really have a speaking part. <laughs> to be perfectly honest, true. So no, but I think it's sometimes a bit of an overlooked performance in the film with everything else that goes on. Yeah, it, it just fascinated me watching this the other night, and and for me it was the standout performance. But also, I'm looking in the background at some of the famous sort of. Yeah, the, the, the British stars that we're going to be talking about when we get to the Hall of Fame, you know, the the, the character actors that we're all so familiar with. Talking to the little girl at the Riverside, who was it? Jane Asher. Jane Asher, Jane yes. Asher, aged about, I'd say about eight years old, possibly, in this movie. Yeah, mm. incredible. Incredible. Tell you what, Stephen, let's, let's get your keys out, mate. Let's take a wander up to the Village Hall of Fame and just see... If we've got any new inductees or anybody making some return appearances. Okay, Stephen, as we say, we're probably going to do a separate Hammer Village Hall of Fame. Uh, we'll have to come up with a funky name for that some somehow. But with the traditional, you know, standard Hall of Fame that we used to over the last hundred episodes, who have we got in, mate? Who's who's knocking on the door? 
Well, knocking on the door, but not quite in yet, is those making their second appearance, which, you know, a number of names there which aren't necessarily uh, as familiar as some of the other names in this film. So there's uh, David Kingwood, Ken Buckle, Michael Godfrey, uh, Fred Johnson, Bartlett Mullins, which I think is a great name, Brilliant. and Charles Price. So they're, they're um, people who are still waiting for their entry point uh, under the portico, just waiting to, <laughs> to get in. We do actually have a number of people making their debut in the Hall of Fame, having Ooh, had three appearances excellent. now. Um, in fact, there's uh, 11 of them. Wow, that's amazing. I didn't realise there were that many people in the film. Can I just no. say, can I just say, last time Mark was here, we had a similar situation. I think Mark is the lucky sort of mascot for the Hall of Fame. He he brings them in with him. I don't know how this happens. It's... Yeah, it's an ill one, isn't it? Um, okay, eleven. Are you going to rattle so, off the movies? Because that's a lot of movies. I think I'll I'll probably not rattle off the movies that they're in <laughs> if you want to. You know, because it'll take quite a while. I suppose. Go, let's have um, so who we got. There's Eric Corey, mm-hmm. Arthur Gross, yeah, or Gross. Another Arthur, Arthur Lovegrove, yeah, Frank Phillips, but also Paul Phillips, uh, no oh, relation. Okay, George Roderick, mm-hmm. John Timberlake, Tok Townley, mm-hmm. Stanley Van Beers. Yeah, we don't know any of these so far. Yeah, go on. No. Um, and then we've got two familiar names. Uh, we've got Lionel Jeffries. Excellent. Yep. Oh, and, nice. And yeah. Jack Warner. Oh, what, what a, what a nice. duo. So, yeah, I'd like to hear those, the films of those yeah. two. Jack Warner previously was in Always Rains on a Sunday and I'm trying to remember the other one he was in now. Um, no, it's gone off my, off my head. Lionel Jeffries, though, he was in Dunkirk, but he was also obviously in The Amazing Mr. Blunden. Yes, of course. Um, and in fact, he didn't invite and direct that as well. He did. The Amazing Mr. Blunden. Jack Warner um, would have been in months ago, mate, because obviously we've lost our Blue Lamp episode somewhere along the way. Was that one? Yeah, if it would have been in before now, uh, if it weren't for that. Uh, so, Jack Warner was in Scrooge. That's it, Scrooge, yes. Yeah, Scrooge. yeah, it's a. It's a Dan and Dirty character in Scrooge. Yes. Uh, yeah, quite yeah. a different kind of character. Yeah. So, um, so yes, yeah, so thankfully we've got uh, 11 people making their, their debut, so they're wow. pushing their way in and finding a pew for themselves Okey within the, yeah. the village hall. We've also got three people making their fourth appearances. Mm-hmm. That's uh, Mabel Etherington. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Lindsay Hopper. Yep. And Henry B. Longhurst. Wow. <laughs> I, I, I'm sure you make half of these up. Mate. Nobody <laughs> checks these facts. You know They're that. starting to sound a bit like um, uh, Groucho Marx names. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Rufus T. Flyerfly. He's, he's, he's in there somewhere, isn't he? Come on. <laughs> it just happens to be. Yeah. We do have somebody making their fifth appearance. Mm-hmm. Name it isn't a made-up one. Hopefully you'll believe me, um, okay. this name. Mm-hmm. Um, somebody called Gordon Jackson. Fantastic. Oh, yes. So, Hell Drivers, Prime and Miss Jean Brodie, um, It Crestfile, and Whiskey Galore, the only one making their f- fifth appearance. Um, <sighs> there are two people making their seventh appearance. Keep them coming, <laughs> mate. Keep them coming. The two people making their seventh appearance. There's Basil Dignam. I know the name. Yeah. Cocked up before, and his yep. face is familiar. Mm-hmm. And then there's somebody called Sam Kidd. <laughs> only seven. <laughs> Yeah. Only so, so. that's surprising. There. And there was somebody making their eighth appearance. Go for it, mate. Go on. Joe Phelps, his name is. 
So, and you've got no idea who Joe Phelps no, is. No, but... I, I bet he was in Night to Remember, though. Uh, <laughs> yes. <laughs> Possibly Dunkirk. Yeah, probably, yeah. And then we've got two people making... Uh... <laughs> it's all your fault, Mark, you know that, I'm telling you. <laughs> oh, dear. Uh, we've got two people making their 12th appearances. Wow. In 101 episodes, they've appeared in 12 so far. Yeah. One of them is a, is a guy called Guy. Guy Stand, Stand even. even, he's got to be, yes, yes. the legend. And uh, the other one is the Duchess. <gasps> Marion Stone was the nurse, I forgot. Yes, yeah, she was the nurse yes. with the Chinese, getting the Chinese oh, after work. Right, hang on a second though, Marianne Stone, so she's number 12. As it stands at the moment, I think, wasn't Cyril Chamberlain top of the tree still with Victor Harrington and Marianne Stone second place? Yes, it was um, Victor... Yeah, I'm trying to remember whether it was Victor Harrington, Harrington or um, Cyril Chamberlain that was top of the They the were tree. sort of taking over each other, weren't they? There was because a real they, ding-dong. They kept overlapping each yeah. other, yeah. I mean, I know that Cyril Chamberlain has been in um, 12. Um, so that's the same as Marianne Stone, yeah. Uh, Victor Harrington is only on 11 at the moment. So she is now first of the list along with Cyril Chamberlain. Yeah, the Duchess and the governor. No, hang on, who was the governor? Yeah, Cyril Chamberlain's the governor. He's the governor. It? Yeah. So, and um, obviously, you know, we need to be keeping our eye out for various films that they're both in. Um, oh wow! You know, I don't think they've ever acted in in the same scene together, but they've certainly been in the same film together. Um, they might have been in Carry On Cabby together and a couple of things like that. Definitely. Oh wow. So, oh, yes, I was very happy to see the Duchess. Or there. yeah, Carry On Doctor maybe. Yes, because she's the. The mother of the boy that has the chamber pot on his head in one of the Doctor yeah. movies, isn't she? Any, oh, that is good. That is good news. So, Marianne Stone. I completely forgot to mention her. Yes. Marvellous to see her. Okay, should we try our new feature, guys? <laughs> yeah, go on. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, buckle yourselves in. It's Bob's Full House of Horror. Listen, Bob's Full House of Horror. Uh, what we want you, the dear listener, to do is to play along at home. We're going to make these bingo cards available on, online on the Facebook group and sort of on link to Twitter somehow. And, and as you're watching the movie, because obviously we're going to pre-announce what the next movie's going to be, select one of your cards that Stephen has wonderfully created for us. Um, Mark was chuckling away at some of the stuff that we've got on here because it is typical Hammer Horror tropes on these bingo cards. And if whatever's on the card crops up in the movie, cross it off. Chances of getting a full house, guys, I think are pretty slim on these cards, would you say? Because I can't see one particular movie having all of these elements in it. 
No, I've been spread out <laughs> yeah, in yeah, such a way that some, some of them are, uh, you know, that you've got um, some of the tropes that are from, more from certain types of film, they're, they're spread out over them, so yeah. you might find it difficult getting a, a full house, but um, certainly you should be able to hopefully get a, a, a couple for each film at least. Alright, well what we'll do, we'll rotate the order of the cards every episode as well, so we don't keep the same card, okay? Randomly assign them to each of us. And let's just go through, I mean, um, I've got card number one, I'll come to me last. Who's got card number two? That's me. Right, read out your entries on your bingo card, mate, and we'll see if we can cross any of these off. What have you got? Spooky Coachman. That's a no. Uh, no. Was there a taxi driver in here, perhaps? I don't know. <laughs> nah. Uh, no. Barbara Shelley. Um, no. She wasn't in it. Mystery Monster. Yes. Oh, definitely. Definitely. Yes, yes. Yep. Uh, Bat on a String. No, no. No, <laughs> no. no string, didn't get that. <laughs> James Bernard Scar. Yes. He's got we two. Oh, one. my God. He's got two, yeah. Himbo. So the, the uh, handsome nah. idiot lead. Well, no. maybe the, the, not the nurse, the guy that kidnapped you know helped his kidnapped Ooh. but um, not really a himbo he, he was too clever to be a himbo that's the trouble, right? inventive crucifix definitely no, not, not. No. and uh, this one I think we did get uh, which is uh, a transform tra- transform terror <gasps> definitely yeah, so you got four Four, four out of eight. Well done. Uh, three, I think, isn't it? The mon- no, Mystery yeah, Monster. Oh yeah, three, three. Mister Monster, uh, James Bernard Scar, and uh, Transform Terror. Three yeah. out of eight. We, we so. could we could do a league table of these every week, guys, as well. So you got three. Yeah, yeah, that's good. Good idea. Okay. Three. Okay. Mark, you've got card number three. Three. Yes. Okay. I've got plunging cleavage. Unfortunately, <laughs> not. Uh, maybe I'm the f- oh, just no, you. Um. <laughs> just my deformed assistant. No. Not no. assistant. Michael Ripper. No. No. Oh, no. Thunder and lightning. Um, no, there wasn't any in this film. Was no. there? I can't think of one. Spooky glow. Uh, it was a bit hazy around the rocket. The rocket was and a bit warm. Spooky glows on the actual camera shots of the inside of the you know the found footage. Yeah. Yeah. There, all right. Think, yeah, so that seems reasonable. We'll give you one there. Mm-hmm. Good blonde, bad brunette. There was a bad brunette. Well, bad accent brunette. Uh, <laughs> but, uh, not a, a good blonde. No. Mystery monster. Yes, got that. Yep. Mystery monster and James Bernard score. So I got two. Got two. Two. There. Stephen's got three. I've got two. Right, guys. My eight. Definitely no pitchfork villagers in this movie. Still waiting to see Michael Ripper. Sadly. Mad scientist. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, yeah. it was not it? Okay. I think Glow, haven't we? So spooky yeah. glow's going to yeah. count. That's two. I've got blood red eyes. Can't tell in this one, can we? It's black and white. Shame. Shame, okay. Sorry, I got three. I just realised I got three. I had the mystery box. You did, yes. Ah, there we go. Right, so you two have got three. I've got mad scientist, spooky glow so far. Blood red eyes, no. I've got good blonde, bad brunette, and we said no to that, didn't we? Uh, well, the brunette, but not the blonde. Okay, and I've got himbo as well, which is a no. And I've got the wonderful Barbara Shelley on my card, who didn't appear in this movie, unfortunately. So I've got two. Sadly, on your card, but not in the film. Yeah. Yes. So I only got two. Whoa. So three, three, two. Three, three, two. Should, yeah. we, should we do a little league table, guys, of who gets oh, what? I think, yeah. yeah. Why not, eh? Especially since you're randomizing it. Okay. That makes sense. That makes sense. And we'll get some more cards made up with some other 
sort of suggestions to go on cards. Listeners, if you want to send in any ideas, Stephen will quite happily, I'm sure, make up some extra yep. cards to, to distribute. Just a little bit of fun, guys. Bob's Full House of Horror. <laughs> So, guys, quite a mass experiment. Let's let's start with Stephen, mate. I mean, you've seen this four or five times now. You watched it again this week. It's obviously a, a bit of a favourite for you to keep going back to it. Just give us your final thoughts, mate. How, how does this stand for you? I know we, we're not going to be able to rank this amongst the 52 because this is going to be an impossible task to say that this is number six of your list or whatever. But where does it rank? Is it a mid, mid-table hammer as far as you're concerned? It's certainly not lower echelons, is it, this one? Certainly not lower. In fact, I'd say it was one of the, the higher-up ones, mm. although it's atypical in the sense of its horror elements. What it lacks in those sense, it, it does make up in other ways. Um, there's a, a amazing quality in it in a number of ways. To be fair, I mean, you, you know, you look at the acting, for example, and there's, there's very few performances in it that don't actually stack up. I think... Um, there was only one uh, to be um, to be critical of, really. Um, and then, the you know, even the way that they're actually using things like the the found footage idea or pseudo documentary in bits and pieces, and they've got you know the tying in with the the filmmaking documentary about St Paul's. I just think it's 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 a cleverer, more mature sci-fi that that works and sets a precedent for future sci-fi, particularly in Britain, as I said, yeah. uh, as well as elsewhere. And I think it deserves more attention and more respect um, than it's it's got, just because it, it, it did start something that um, has inspired a lot of other people. And I think you'll find a lot of people who went on to, to do sci-fi, fantasy, etc., um, will have come from this starting point of being able to actually do the, the realistic cerebral sci-fi horror without having to resort to ping pong ball <laughs> eyes yeah as mark pointed out the influences on on the guys that created things like doctor who and you know some jerry anderson stuff and some of them future sort of bbc you know, Christmas ghost stories, the M.R. James stuff that we'd seen in later years. It, it all stems back to this, mate, doesn't it? The dawn of BBC, the, the dawn of British TV, you know, is, is the starting point of the, this whole thing. And things like Survivors and all, you know, some of the Terry Nation stuff and all. That, as you say, in Doctor Who particularly, there's there's a legacy from this, as well as it being standalone in its own right of quality and, and what it then, within its own, own thread, of subsequent films on coming from the same um, mind, it did inspire um, greatness elsewhere as well as it being great in itself, in my opinion. So um, I think this is absolutely the right starting point, and it's one that, especially since it's less than ninety minutes, people should be um, making an effort to see because it shouldn't be hard to find considering its its age. It should be available quite quite easily. It is, yeah. 
I mean, is there any point in asking Mark what he thinks of this movie? <laughs> <laughs> oh, I could be, I've got some critical criticism yeah. of some elements of it. Um, uh, it's uh, uh, it's a very pacey film. I think mm. it's a great introduction. Um, it uh, really condenses the series really well. There's some weak elements. Uh, the particular Victor Caroon's wife, uh, the yes. act. I think that they overdubbed her with an American accent, really in a really mm. obvious way, and yeah. it just it's very kind of flat and uh, not really connect and takes you out of the film a bit. Yes. Um, it's a bit troublesome. And this is quite a different quite match from the TV show, but I think it totally works as it is um, as well. Uh, and I do like all the sort of film noir elements. And uh, I mean, the final shots of him just striding down a corridor between light and dark shadows. Oh yeah. Um, and then a rocket taking off, meaning he's got his way again. <laughs> it's quite, quite amazing uh the the dialogue's very punchy and somewhat functional but that's a i think that's an aspect of the 80 minute running time of course i think some of it could have been a little longer but i think there, there was a great balance of uh, sort of character and and um and action actually there's some great haunting stuff you know the stuff from the zoo all the dead animals they didn't use many dead animals but they what they did totally worked so um i don't think it's perfect but i think it's pretty great it's up there with any 50s uh horror sort of movie it's like top tier for me this is top tier hammer me though it is uncharacteristic hammer it has to be said but it's a good starting point isn't it it's the perfect oh yeah it's the starting point because as i said this funded hammer to do what it did it gave hammer confidence to do what it did to move out of b movies into horror and whoever came out you know whether it's luck or planning they it was genius what they became you know like we said the the perfect storm mate it all came together at exactly the right time and just created this fantastic legacy that we're going to be covering, we, we think, over the next 10 years, possibly by the time we get to the end of this, this run. <laughs> um, I was going to mention the zoo sequence as, as a standout for me. That just brought all the elements together. That, Like you said, the film noir guys, the, the light and dark. The, it, was, it was almost like cat people, you know, that sort of Al Luton type mm. uh, cinematography. And it was edge-of-the-seat stuff, you know, it was that first-person aspect there but then you get well the, the, can i just mention there was another really standout scene mm. which was the bit in the car where he's with the wife she's prattling on but he's just looking at her yeah creepy. And it's like really creepy yeah it's really creepy uh and that is i mean there's often a debate with sci-fi stroke horror films uh, is it sci-fi or is it horror and to me this is a horror film uh, with sci-fi trappings it's not is uh, you know it's a but it might even be the first true body horror film where you're talking about your body rebelling against you which leads to stuff like the fly in 86 and stuff like that where it's quite a horrific thing for your own body to turn against you and it's like becomes an allegory of illness and yeah, sick you know point, it's all yeah. that's in there it's all baked into this yeah, it's quite clever that scene in the car as you say just highlights richard wordsworth's acting even though he doesn't have any dialogue as such as you mm. said it was all there in his eyes you know, did you know Richard Wordsworth was the great grandson of Wordsworth the uh, the poet? No, yeah, I think he's the great or great great grandson. Yeah, and actually. if I recall rightly, if you look at pictures of him in other films, he looks completely different. Yes, of his IMDb picture, totally yeah. different. Yeah, absolutely. But as I say, the, the zoo sequence was a standout for me. Yeah, there are some bits that all right. There's a few niggles, you know, but it was nice to see 
Thora heard. It was nice to see Sam Kidd and Jack Warner and Gordon Jackson just bringing it into the whole Real Britannia family of, of movies, you know, just some familiar faces there. Brian Don Levy is nowhere near as bad as some of the reviews make him out to be. I think he was perfectly well, capable for the role. You know, it was absolutely fine. He, he, he did what was asked of him. I'm looking forward to Quatermass 2 and Quatermass in the Pit, which is quite a way away. And I'm going to try and go back and rewatch. Did they? They, they did this again, didn't they, Mark? Get, correct me here that they did a BBC Four adaptation ten, fifteen years in, ago. Yeah, in two thousand five. Right. It was very good. I liked it. I mean, it was stagey yeah. uh, because it was live broadcast. I think it was the first time the BBC had live broadcast anything in twenty years. Wow. Now they do it reasonably frequently now with yeah. EastEnders and stuff, don't yeah. they? Uh, and they've done it with Doctor Who since as well. But this yeah. was the first time in twenty years, uh, and that was Jason Fleming, who I thought was really good uh, as Quatermass. Uh, supported by David Tennant as the supporting doctor. Yeah, so he's a doctor. In, During the filming it. of it, he got the news <laughs> that he was going to be cast as Doctor Who. I read. Yeah, it. yeah, and Mark Gattis is in it again. You know, a massive fan of the whole Nigel Neal canon is 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 Mark Gattis and all those guys. Inside Number Nine guys, possibly some of that's influenced, isn't it? By yeah, yeah. This sort of oh, movie, yeah. Um, when we get to Great Mass Two, mm. we then that's a seriously influential film right uh, um way more so than this one um uh, so i want to talk about that when we get to equipment too we- but uh, i have to say the performance by the guy playing victor croon in that was outstanding as well mm-hmm. really good i can't remember the actor's name but it was a really great performance uh the the the, the thing suffers a bit from they quite don't quite know when when it's supposed to be set so they kind of hedge their bets by dressing people in kind of 50s clothes mm. but there's like modern medical equipment now so okay. it's like is it the 50s is it now <laughs> and the kid talks weird it doesn't talk like a kid he meets a kid at one point it was, mm. it was like the analog of the little girl the the kid's kind of mouthy but it's kind of weirdly anachronistic wow. it doesn't work but it's got its flaws but it's it's interesting to watch definitely one for the completest i'd say though okay might have a little look at that and might go back and have a little look at the john mills one from the late 70s because i remember that being on that was a big tv event at the time i remember yes yeah mm-hmm. <laughs> okay guys that's the first of about 50 hammer horrors that we're going to review. Are you ready for this? It's a big project. I was born yeah. ready. Born ready. <laughs> that's, that's what I like to hear. So let's take a short break and we'll let the guys know what we're going to be reviewing next time. Okay, guys, the plan is with the Hammer Horror series, we're going to do one every five episodes. So this is episode 101. Episode 106, the next in the sequence, is X the Unknown. Okay, and as you mentioned, Mark, it's got Dean Jagger in it as the American staple brought in. 1956, 
You'll be pleased to know, Stephen, that Edward Chapman, Mr. Grimsdale, is in this movie. Yeah. <laughs> and we've also got Leo Bacurd. Andy Newley's in there. Um, I'm just trying to... Oh, and it's the first appearance. The Ripper. The, the first appearance there. for The Ripper is in there. Yes. Um, Get in. Young Fraser Hines, Kenneth Cope, lots of uh, familiar faces. You thought the synopsis for this one was brief. Listen to this, RhymeDB synopsis. A radioactive, mud-like creature terrorises a Scottish village. That's it. That's all we, that's all we know. <laughs> X the unknown, definitely. Also, coming up, as I say, this is episode 101. Episode 102 has been recorded, which was Dad's Army, the movie. That's coming up immediately after this one. And then Stephen and I were going to get together to do the Kenneth Moore movie. Is it Northwest? We can't remember. It's Northwest Passage or Northwest Frontier, can we? Northwest Frontier. Northwest Frontier with Lauren Bacall. Mark has very kindly agreed to stay with us throughout this whole season of Hammer Horrors. Mark, you're also penciled in for Dr. Terror's House of Horror at some point, if I remember rightly. Oh, a bit of amicus, lovely. Yeah, so we'll try and squeeze that in somewhere along the way. Got a busy summer coming up, chaps, going forward. Thank you both for doing this. I think it's a worthwhile addition to the Real Britannia family, don't you? About time, really. Yeah, yeah it's excellent. Horror doesn't get its own much play outside of horror podcasts and yeah. stuff, the community, so it's kind of nice to... And a lot of people are going to remember these, you know. Yeah. Um, uh, just say, we're just hoping people will watch along with us as well and have a bit of fun with the bingo and, and just, just relive some of the memories because there's a lot of us that you know watch these like you said my eight nine years old you know perhaps we shouldn't have done but we certainly were watching them back then and for me it's, it's quite sort of nostalgic as well as actually watching a good movie yeah 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 it does take you back to almost the the dalit type scenario where you're sort of hiding behind the cushion because mm. you're watching it at too young an age Hiding behind the Peter cushion, yes. <laughs> hey, 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 hey. <laughs> the early ass was a bit like Dalek Mania in its first phase. Not as mad as Dalek Mania. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, we spoke of that, didn't we? You know how, how big that was in 64. And, and like you said, you know, TVs were fairly new, but everybody had bought one for the coronation. So they had to put some content out there. And this was just, it just captured people's imaginations. And quite rightly, it got the big budget, big screen treatment. So absolutely perfect start to this season guys thank you both of you for being here today oh you're very welcome thank you for having me pleasure yeah okay guys see you all very soon take care bye positive shot Good luck. Thank you.
the British end up, sir. I'm sick of pains. <laughs>